0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My very special guest today is chakra expert, therapist, and spiritual teacher, Anadeya Judith. She is the author and co-author of several books, The Wildly Popular Eastern Body, Western Mind, as well as Wheels of Life, The Sevenfold Journey, Reclaiming Mind, Body, and Spirit Through the Chakras, The Global Heart Awakens, also creating on purpose the spiritual technology of manifesting through the chakras and the recently released Anadeya Judith's Chakra Yoga, which is a reinvention of her chakra yoga teacher training manual. Anadeya has garnered great acclaim through her work and spends much of her professional time traveling, conducting workshops and teacher trainings around the country and the world. So hello, Anadeya. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Jacob. It's a delight to be here.
0: So it really is such a pleasure to interview you today because I have to say, personally, uh, encountering your book was a a significant uh, part of my own path. I remember when I did my first teacher training, uh, there was someone reading your book who was in the training and it really connected just the title of Eastern Body, Western Mind really connected with me because I spent many years studying Western philosophy. So I was always interested in this this connection between Eastern and Western thought. So it was something that I sort of put in the back of my mind. I'm going to read that. And then when I finally did it was immediately something that I started to incorporate into my classes. I, I themed a lot of my uh, I themed a whole uh, series of chakra classes uh, around your book, and also a, a couple of retreats now that we, I've done in Costa Rica with a friend of mine. We've we've uh, based the whole retreat around your book, so it really is such has been such a fundamental part of my teaching, and uh, and thank you so much for it. In fact, whenever I teach out of it, I read a little passage here and there, and I've. I've uh, gotten so many people come up to me asking, where did you get that book? How can I find it? And, and so I feel like the, your book really finds a lot of people through yoga classes in that way. So thank you for that. And I'm just wondering, I would love to hear the story a little bit about, um, well, first of all, I guess for the the listeners who are perhaps fairly new to the chakras, if you wouldn't mind just describing what the chakras are, and then maybe taking us through a little bit of your personal story that led you to uh, this work on the chakras.
1: Yeah. Okay. So um, chakras are, I'll give you my personal definition of the chakras i mean they're energy centers their uh, philosophical system there are many things but the definition that i use is that they are centers of organization for the reception the assimilation and the expression of life force energy mm. and i look at them as chambers in the temple of the body And just like the chambers in your home, you know, your kitchen, you bring in food, you prepare it, you take out the garbage, you know, each of these chambers takes in energy at a certain level, different levels for each chakra, it assimilates it into the body-mind complex, and it expresses it out in, you know, our activities and our life force. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we take in words, we assimilate that into a meaning, and then we express ourselves, that's an example And it's really of the life force energy. Mm -hmm. The life force energy is what connects mind and body. Right. It's the spirit part of the mind-body-spirit complex. So um, it's that aliveness that we're really looking for in life.
0: Hmm. So when did you first hear about the chakras? I mean, when in your own journey did you discover the chakras? And then what led you to this this really deep uh, lifetime study of this topic.
1: Well, it was back in 1975 when I went through a big change, um, kind of had an awakening from, believe it or not, as a teenager, I smoked cigarettes, but I mm-hmm. quit smoking and I quit eating meat at that time. And I started doing yoga and started reading everything I could on various spiritual philosophies, metaphysics, things like that. And, um, it was in a book by Ram Dass called the only dance there is that I first read the word chakra. And it was like a shot of energy went through me. Mm-hmm. And when I started reading about chakras and trying to research it, uh, it was all this Western, um, bias that, Oh, the lower chakras are bad and evil. Yeah. and We have to close them down to get to this state up in the top. And I, immediately thought that's not right why would we have seven chakras just to get rid of the lower three you know that's Mm -hmm. a bias that you know i would say sort of patriarchal religions have had that have denigrated the body the earth the feminine the passion the power sexuality all those things have been denigrated in those philosophies and they're actually very important parts of our wholeness Mm-hmm. So I began to see it as a, a profound formula for wholeness, like a recipe for wholeness to address our lives equally on each one of these chakras, mm-hmm. or at least in a balanced fashion.
0: I'm really glad you said that about um, the lower chakras, because actually I had, um, I had an opportunity to engage in one of those you know, notorious Facebook debates where people sort of hide behind their comments but somebody had mentioned something about how we needed to take the energy up and that western culture just like you said this this kind of cliche of the western culture being bound up in their lower chakras and we need to take the energy up and i had the same response i didn't actually i chose not to respond to the yeah. to the to the statement but i had this reaction myself that that it just seemed it's there seemed to be something imbalanced about it, it seemed to uh, appeal to this kind of up and out um, program of, of enlightenment philosophy that we see a lot where where the body is sort of left behind for this this transcendent state that somehow transcends our embodied experience so i 'm really glad that you that you mentioned that:
1: yeah, I think that that philosophy is actually a philosophy of division rather than uniting right and that it 's a philosophy that's destroying our health and destroying our world
0: mm. Mm.
1: So what would you say then,
0: um, this is sort of a good segue, what would you say then are some myths about the chakras that you often um, come into contact with?
1: Oh, boy, there's lots of them. I hear everything, you know, in in my travels around the world. I could could share some pretty racy emails that people send me about (laughs) their dog chakras and (laughs) they prey on their dog's chakra dog collar or whatever. Oh, my
0: gosh. There's so much fluff, it seems.
1: There is so much fluff, and I have worked hard to try to separate from that fluffy stuff and make it a really grounded, um, practical uh, system that anybody mm. can use that kind of makes intrinsic sense.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But, you know, some of the questions I get most often are, one is, which way did the chakras spin? Mm. and Um, You know, some people think they all spin clockwise and some people counterclockwise. And no one says from whose perspective, whether it's the perspective of the person receiving a healing or the person giving it. To me, the spin is so superficial to be really not even relevant. Mm -hmm. And the analogy I use is it's sort of like saying, if you part your hair on the other side, will you become smarter? (laughs) You know, it's a very superficial kind of thing. You know, you might look better, I don't know, but um, it's not going to make what is deeply interior. It's not going to make your headache go away, or it's not going to make your intelligence greater. It's not going to bring you transcendence to, you know, change your hairdo. Well, trying to change the spin of the chakras from somebody waving their hands over you, to me, is very irrelevant to what's going on at the deep
0: core. Right. And what do people actually think the stakes are in the chakras spinning a particular way?
1: Well, I think there's a bias in new age and American culture, especially for an external quick fix. Mm. you know let me put a gemstone on my chakra and all I have to do is lay there and everything will be fine right <laughs> and I'll find the perfect lover and my heart chakra will be healed forever yeah. or you know somebody just wave their hands over me or say the magic words or take this pill and it's it's a Western bias that we can Heal without really doing the work.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And who's got the ticket for me? Who's got the magic potion? Mm-hmm. And I think that in the chakras, what I find is a lot of people want some simple formula. And I refuse to give it. You know, they'll say, well, how many days a week should I work on my first chakra? And how many times should I do this breath? And my answer is, it depends. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a grounded person, naturally you don't have to work as hard on your first chakra if you live way up in your head and you're miles away from your feet you may have to do first chakra work every day so it really depends on who you are mm-hmm. and it's not a one size fits all kind of thing we have to feel ourselves we have to get inside and do the work is my my bias
0: yeah yeah i th- i th- I like what you said about the quick fix prescription because I think that there is uh, and this is a question I had for later, but maybe we can talk about it now, which is the the kind of the difference between the the framework of a lot of um, therapy and also approaches to uh, psychiatric health, in which there is this kind of pathologizing of of whatever the um, you know the, the psychological dilemma is in such a way that it would make sense to take a pill it would make sense to you know, lay something on it that was going to just quickly um, wash that um, pathology away. Whereas it seems that the chakras are, in, in terms of the the framework that they offer, it's much more of a path. It's a journey that is going to take you, you know, through different realms of meaning and different aspects of experience. And it will take a while. You know, it's not a, it's not that you are um, sick in this kind of like. Uh, exactly. you know, way that you could just take something and then it's going to be lifted from you. It really is going to require your engagement. So I'm, I'm curious if you'd just maybe elaborate a little bit on kind of what you see being the difference between maybe some modern approaches to psychotherapeutic health versus what the chakras offers.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, the chakras are a map for the journey through life. Mm. And you know, so many of us have been on the spiritual path, been on the path to healing ourselves, been on the path to try to study what this world is made of and what it's all about and why we're here. I mean, all that kind of thing. I think most people that are waking up have spent some time on that path. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, there aren't any maps for that path. To me, the chakra system is a map. And the map doesn't tell you where you have to go. You know, if you have a map of Massachusetts, it doesn't say you have to go to Boston or Worcester. It just says, if you want to go to Boston, here are the routes to get there. Mm -hmm. And so this map doesn't say we have to go to a particular chakra, but it says, if you want to open your heart, here's the path to get here. If you want to open your throat chakra and communicate and heighten your creativity, here's the path to get here. Mm -hmm. And it's a path toward wholeness. And like you just said so articulately, it's really an invitation into the mystery of it's a practice that is cumulative over time, like yoga. Mm -hmm. You're not going to go to one yoga class and do only one yoga class in your life and harvest everything there is to get from yoga. Mm -hmm. You're not even going to begin to understand what there is to get from yoga from a single yoga class. Uh, It's really years of practice that are deepening. And so I think that's the way people need to look at it It is a deep map, not only for our individual personal growth, but also for society's collective social change Mm. and evolution.
0: Mm. Wow. Yeah. So that's, that's so interesting. And I, I love the idea of the chakras as a map. And, and one thing that I that i think is so important and we've sort of touched on this a little bit is that the chakras you know in a culture in which psychology is often kind of uh relegated to the head you know we think about of everything going on sort of in our brain the chakras offer a map of psychology on the body so there's this sense yes. in which you know the mind-body problem or the mind-body separation is is in 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 a certain sense um bypassed or, or lifted from, from what the chakras are kind of offering. So as you've been kind of mentioning a little bit, each chakra represents different aspects of our psychology. So I was wondering if you could just quickly review each chakra kind of moving from the root to the head or to the crown chakra and maybe what, it repre- what each represents or what they govern in terms of psychology.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. And I totally agree with you. It's an embodied philosophy yeah. and it's not just mental health. You know? Right. Um, and really, it's from the tantric tradition. I just want to mention this. And tantric is a weaving of polarities. So, heaven and earth, mind and body, inside, outside, masculine, feminine, mm-hmm. uh, spirit and matter. Tantra is a philosophy of weaving these polarities together. And through that weaving, we create the fabric of reality. Yeah. So I just wanted to get that in. Yes, thank you. Okay, so if we look at the whole schema, and it's really quite complex, but from the psychological perspective, <laughs> we start at the first chakra, the base of the spine, which represents our survival instincts, the most basic level of consciousness that's really hardwired into the body. You know, you sweat when you're hot, you shiver when you're cold, you think about food when you're hungry, you yawn when you're sleepy. You know, these are hardwired into the body to help the body survive. And if we don't survive, we don't get to take the rest of the journey. So in the first chakra, we get delivered into our body. That's our first year of life when we wake up out of the womb and we say, wow, I have to figure out how to live in this physical world. And... Everything is internal. How do I sit up? How do I make these muscles work? How do I hold down my food? You know, really, really basic body consciousness. Mm-hmm. And the brain-body interface is getting its initial wiring and circuitry Um you know wired up at this time and so if the child is held if they're fed when they're hungry if they're protected from danger if the child is touched a lot they get to a sense of the brain connecting with the body and they become embodied which is the first step toward health and toward really being here Mm -hmm. the issues here are safety and security Because a child is completely unable to provide any of their own needs at this age. They can't feed themselves. They can't walk. They can't talk. They can't dress themselves. They're completely dependent on the survival needs coming from outside. So this sets a pattern. Do we feel safe in the world? Do we expect that if we put out effort, the universe will provide, you know? Or do we live in scarcity and do we have a sense of danger and not let anything in and having to be hypervigilant? So it's, you know, all the chakras are quite complex, but if this stage goes well, then the person has a more natural connection to their body, uh, to the earth, to their prosperity, to their sense of safety and security. Hmm. If not, they're plagued with the demon of fear, which sends energy upward. Then we come to the second chakra, assuming the first chakra stage went well. This is six months to two and a half years or so. And this is where a child is starting to move. They wake up to, they're able to sit up is what I mean, actually, And when they can sit up, the eyes can focus across the room, and this gives rise to curiosity and the desire to locomote, to move, and they start creeping and crawling and walking and running. Mm -hmm. And then they're into everything, exploring through their senses, and the senses are how the outside world comes in and starts to bring the map to consciousness. Oh, this has a hot stove. Don't touch it. It hurts. This is ice cream. It tastes good. I want more. Um, you know, this is mommy in a good mood. I feel safe and loved. This is mommy in a bad mood. What did I do wrong? You know, and it's not even cognitive yet. It's a uh, really a sensory motor stage. And we're getting wired up here with our emotions, our movement and our sensation, because the only language the child can speak at this second chakra stage is an emotional language. They can't say, mommy, the bottle's too hot. They can only go, wah, (laughs) and hope that that communicates something. And they don't really even, they're learning to understand words as they go through this stage. But at the beginning, they don't understand the words that are spoken around them. They understand the tone, the emotional flavor. So emotions and what is, you know, again, safe pleasure and pain. We move toward pleasure and away from pain. Uh, How a child moves, the grace in their body. All of this has to do with how they go through the second chakra stage which is the element water and it's about <clears throat> flow and fluidity and then as adults it's about you know sexuality which includes emotion and desire and sensation and risk and polarity and all these aspects that all come into play in the realm of self and other in the realm of sexuality the whole realm of duality mm-hmm. So then we come to the third chakra, and that is the element fire. It's in the solar plexus. And developmentally, this is when the child starts to develop their own individual will. At about 18 months or so, the child starts saying, I and me and mine and no, And they start, you know, discovering that they have an individual will. I can thwart mommy. I can throw my peas on the floor. I can do this or I can not do this. And by this time, the child has basic language. So they're hearing, no, don't do that. Eat your food. Don't hit your sister. Be quiet. You know, they're starting to hear these commands and they're starting to internalize that the task is impulse control. And of course, depending on the environment, how much are the impulses controlled? Are they controlled so much that the fire is shut down, and maybe somewhat subdued for life? Which is the way most people are going around with their aliveness only at about you know thirty, forty percent, mm-hmm. because they've been shut down so much. And if it's not parents, it's school, you know, that tells us to be still and behave and do what we're told. Or are they indulged and then the life force is disrespectful of other people and uncontained and the person doesn't develop any self-control or discipline or ability to use their will toward a task. So these you know, create different kinds of imbalances in the chakra. It's also how power is handled in the family and how it's modeled. And here we get our autonomy and our ego identity, our sense of self our ability to say no, all really important aspects of the power chakra. Hmm. So is this about the right amount of detail you yeah, want? Yeah, this is great. Yeah, keep going, okay. please. I love <laughs> Good. it. Good. Okay. So then if we get impulse control, we are then old enough and mature enough to become socialized. We can play with other kids. We can go to school. Um, we can become part of the social world. And one of the things that happens at third chakra also is toilet training. Mm-hmm. So we have, this very is important. a very important impulse control and you can't really go to kindergarten until you've got that or nursery school. So yeah. once we have this impulse control, we learn, so to, so to speak, how to behave, we come into the fourth chakra and it's not like a child doesn't want love from the minute they're born. I think that they do. But until there is a certain amount of neurological and motor maturity, they can't do anything about getting that love.
0: Mm.
1: You know, they're just little reaction machines. But once we get impulse control, we can then shape ourselves, our personality, according to the kind of feedback we get about how to be approved of, liked, loved in the social environment. And this is where I think we get a lot of our social gender cues that we watch TV or older brothers and sisters or mother and father say this is how to be a little boy and this is how to be a little girl and this is how you get the teacher to like you and this is how you get the friends to like you. And so what we do is we develop a persona of qualities that we think are acceptable at the cost of some parts of the authentic self. And it could be little boys reject their feminine side and then little girls reject their masculine side um, or could even be the opposite in certain cases or we reject our fearful side or insecure side. And then we grow up in this persona and we're seeking love by this kind of performance and we get into relationships and they're not satisfying because we're not being our real authentic selves. And if you can't be... Your authentic self with a person, there's no real intimacy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just roles interacting with other roles. Mm -hmm. So the adult work of the heart chakra is to rediscover and reconnect with that authentic self that got inwardly rejected through the element of love. And when we can do that and we can relate to that self, then we can relate to another We can relate to the shadow in another person. We can relate to, you know, their fear, their insecurity, and relationships become deeper and richer. Mm -hmm. So this is the heart chakra. And, you know, also it's learning to have compassion. It's learning forgiveness. It's, you know, moving into generosity. It's moving into divine, unconditional love. Mm -hmm. And I see the heart as the gateway between the more practical lower chakras and the more universal upper chakras. And it's kind of the marriage between Shiva, Shakti, mind, body, it's the balance point mm-hmm. and it's the element air. You access it through the breath.
0: So the health the health, if we can speak it of it as the health, of the of the heart chakra is really very much related to the kind of development that takes place uh, in the lower chakras. Bec- I, I'm asking that because I remember seeing recently a class that was marketing itself as cleansing of the heart chakra and it was very based on that. And I just thought that seemed interesting that, you know, you know, here we are talking about uh, this in a very developmental way and then kind of isolating the heart chakra as, you know, as being, you know, a- able to talk about it without talking about the other chakras seemed a little bit, I don't know, problematic
1: Yeah, because I think of the heart chakra as the great integrator. Mm. It's right in the center, and its symbol is the six-pointed star, or two intersecting triangles, spirit coming down into matter and matter going up into spirit, perfectly balanced. So it's the great integrator of, you know, self and other and ourselves with the whole nest of relationships that we're embedded in, in nature and the world, and To have the healthy relationship, that integration needs to be balanced, not overly weighted on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. And I find as a therapist that often in working with couples, the problems at the risk of oversimplification, they come in and say something's out of balance in our relationship. I do all the emotional work and the other person doesn't, or I'm doing all the work raising the kids and the other person doesn't, or I'm doing all the communication, or, you know, something is out of balance. And relationships that last have some kind of balance that that couple has achieved over time, Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's a functional balance or not. You know, it could be, you know, I won't comment on your weight and you don't comment on my drinking, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, some kind of functional balance uh between spirit and matter really. Mm. And it's the great integrator. And when the heart is hurt, that's why we disintegrate. We fall apart. Mm. We just dis- so, yeah. So would
0: you be would you be more inclined, you know, because a lot of uh, I don't want to say traditional, but a lot of what we hear um spoken about about the chakras is that it's a path upward from the lower to the higher and that you know then you your crown chakra pops and there you are enlightened so are you more inclined to see um the chakras as kind of meeting at the center in the heart is it more does that reflect more this kind of embodiment uh, uh approach to the chakras that you would um a- a- ascribe to
1: yes i actually think First of all, I think each of the chakras plays an essential role, so you can't leave any of them out. Mm -hmm. But I think that after we go to the top, we come back down and we integrate the upper chakra spiritual awareness with the lower chakra, grounding, passion, power, practicality. um, And then we can really, then that integration, to me, that's where it's at. That is the final goal, and so many spiritual traditions really say that the heart is the final goal. Right.
0: Right. Okay. Great. So let's let's uh, keep going with uh, okay. the upper chakras. Okay.
1: So now we come into the bottleneck of the chakra system. The throat is the narrowest part of the torso, right where the chakras are. So we have to get through this narrow passage. Its name Vishuda means purification. Mm. And our throat chakra is all about communication, and here's where I put creativity. A lot of people put it in the second chakra, but I think of creativity as our artistic self-expression. Mm-hmm. And we now come to more subtle vibrations. Sound is a vibration of air molecules, um, and that's the element I coordinate with the, with the fifth chakra. In the ancient texts, it was ether. But we can think of the etheric field, like the field around the body, as the sum total of the vibrations of that person. Mm -hmm. And we can meet somebody and say, oh, I really liked his vibes, or I didn't like that person's vibes. Um, And it's really what we're experiencing is the sum total of their thoughts and what they eat and what they do and what they're feeling and all of that. We don't know any of those things. We just experience the overall expression of that. So it's tuning in to the etheric level, tuning in to our self-expression, and whereas in the second chakra, I said that the senses are where the outside comes in and stimulate consciousness, the throat chakra is where the inside comes out. Hmm. In other words, I could make my guesses, but I don't really know what's going on inside you unless you open your mouth and tell me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can look at a student in a class who's yawning and say, "Uh uh-oh, I'm being boring, but maybe they didn't get any sleep the night before. And unless they tell me, I don't really know. So it's where the inside comes out. And if the lower chakras are compromised and we have a lot of shame or fear or guilt, then we may not want to let the inside come out. And therefore, our self-expression and communication and creativity will be blocked. Hmm. Ultimately, as we come to find, discover, and speak, and express our deepest inner truths, we start to come into resonance and alignment with a larger field of truth. And, you know, the great spiritual traditions have been common truths that people have discovered and then espoused for other people to discover.
0: Mm. That's interesting. And I, I wanted to go back a little bit to what you had said about the the uh, translation of Vishuddha. Uh, and I'm just wondering, the translation of purification, um, in my own understanding of uh, of some of the philosophy of the Shaivite tradition, the ancient tantric tradition, that there was, the, due to the special role of vibration and mantra in, mm-hmm. in really like divinizing the body, I'm wondering if that's where that word comes from, since we are, you know, we're using our, our vocal capacity to tap into these vibrations and is that where the the meaning of the word comes from?
1: Yes, in part. It actually has several levels of meaning. One is that sound will purify. Mm. You can chant, you can use a mantra as you're saying and it will start to purify and refine your subtle vibrations, mm. including the vibrations of your brain waves and your breath and your heartbeat and start to bring these into resonance. So that's a purification process. As you go up the chakras, we go from what's called gross vibrations. You know, I would like to say coarse rather than gross. Some people say, "Ooh, gross. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, coarser vibrations to finer and finer b- vibrations. We mm. go through the heart and we work for the through the breath. We go through the throat chakra. We work through chanting and mantra. And as we refine those vibrations, we're refining them toward the stillness that is really the ultimate meaning of yoga, mm. you know, the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. Uh, so the throat chakra is part of that passage. So we have to purify to get to the upper chakras. And that could mean purify yourself of substances, yeah. you know, of toxic people, of toxic situations. Um, the other thing is that speaking our truth purifies the situation. It might make it messy in the short run, but in the long run, it cleans things up. Mm. And um, finding our truth purifies. So there's a, you know, using sound to purify, speaking to purify, and then purifying ourselves to refine the vibration. So it has several levels of meaning.
0: Interesting. Okay, so what's our next chakra?
1: Our next chakra is the Ajna chakra, and that is often called the third eye, although most people see it on the surface of the forehead. It's really deeply in the center of the head, Um, relates to the pineal gland, which sits at the base of a part of the brain called the cave of Brahma. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the only cavities in the brain, and the pineal gland is the only single organ in the in the brain. Everything else is, you know, there's two hemispheres, and but it's the only, just single, right in the center, hmm. and it's actually a third eye in lower species. So that's just a little that's background. But this chakra is about light, it's about seeing, it's about imagining, visualizing your intuition, having a vision for your life, it's about dreaming, it's about accessing, we're beginning to go into the transcendent realms, accessing a realm of wisdom that is beyond the ordinary, seeing patterns, seeing deeply into the nature of things, seeing the ultimate nature of reality. Which is said to be, you know, truth, consciousness, and bliss, shining mm. with an ultimate sparkle. You know, um, that luminescent uh, spark of divinity that's in everything, and being able to see through and pierce illusion that we're embedded in to see the ultimate nature of reality. Mm. Now, I think this question of illusion that spiritual traditions have had. You know, they say, "Oh, well, all matter is an illusion." Yeah. I don't believe that. All you have to do is cut off your leg without Novocaine and say that pain is just an illusion. <laughs> you know? um, this world is exquisitely beautiful and well-ordered. If you study physics, it's amazing how much order there is in everything. Yeah, uh, It's not that that's an illusion. It's this messy world that we've created on top of it, you know? It's the world of ego. It's the world of, you know, Western civilization and all the things we think we need and the things we think are so important. That is really where the illusion lies mm-hmm. and to pierce through to the ultimate intelligence and, um, vibration and presence. And like I say, light, that is the ultimate nature of reality. That is the illusion we want to pierce through.
0: Mm. Hmm.
1: And we access this from becoming still. They say that the dualities of the nadis, nadi means motion and there's subtle rivers of prana in the body, thousands of them, but the major ones, the ida and the pingala that crisscross between the chakras, they say these dualities collapse into a unity in the sixth chakra. So it is from here... As that collapses, that we enter non-dual consciousness Mm -hmm. and enter in non-dual consciousness up to the crown.
0: Mm.
1: And then the crown is the realization of consciousness itself and that consciousness is what's running the show in all the chakras. It's what sees, it's what hears, it's what loves, it's what feels, it's what decides what to do. But in the seventh chakra, we turn consciousness upon consciousness and go, you know, with my awareness, what am I aware of? And who's aware? And what is this consciousness that allows me to be aware? You know, we take it for granted like fish swimming in water. But we have a miraculous level of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And there are ways to even expand that consciousness, And so at this end of the spectrum, we're moving into the infinite.
0: Mm.
1: And by letting go of the finite or the specific, we can release into the infinite. And if we take um, the eight limbs of yoga, you know, the last three dhyana, dharana, and samadhi our, you know, dhyana is more the sixth chakra, let's focus our mind on something to get it still and one pointed. And then as you get absorbed in that practice, you lose even the focus of anything in particular, and you become pure consciousness, which is samadhi. Mm. So that is touching into the very ultimate nature of, you know, not only the ultimate nature of reality, but who's perceiving that and who's in there and who's minding your store and and who is that chatting away inside your head all the time Mm. you know who is that thinking your thoughts and where do they come from and these are the kind of questions that start to take us into the transcendent nature of consciousness and connecting with higher consciousness the whole field of consciousness from which our brains are just little little mini computers that can do a bit of download. <laughs>
0: mm.
1: And so that's the journey upward. And then we want to bring that higher consciousness downward from connecting with our divine purpose, creative vision. And from that vision, have the inspiration and be able to talk about it and create it in the world and be able to find the right relationships to co-create it And being able to get off our butts and do what we have to do and do it with power and and deliberateness and be able to find passion in our work and move things into place. And that downward current is a condensation, a gradual step-by-step condensation of raw consciousness or an idea into manifestation. And I call it the manifesting current. And this is what I wrote about in Creating on Purpose.
0: Yeah, I th- I love that. I love this idea, your current of liberation and current of manifestation, the upward and downward moving energies, just because, you know, going back to that, uh, uh, maybe typical or common other common way of understanding the chakras of, you know, going up and then you're in your upward energies and off you go into the infinite. There's it's almost, you know, you find. Um, you realize a certain vision and then, and then the process becomes, how do I realize that? How do I ground that? How do I manifest that into, into reality in a way that it can transform, you know, the, the earth and the lives of those around me. Um, so I wanted to maybe go back. Thank you for that incredible, um, uh, overview of the chakras. I think that was so fascinating and the listeners are really going to gain a lot from that. It was great. Um, but I want to go back a little bit to the Ajna chakra and what you had said about matter not being the problem because I really, I really like this and I think it's such an important thing to kind of point out because, you know, on one side we do have dualistic sim dualistic systems, or at least ones that, you know, we understand to be dualistic, like Samkhya and yoga, where there's Purusha and Prakriti, and really, you know, as Edwin Bryant discusses in his book, it's not about, you know, combining the two or or uniting the two, but rather really about extracting Purusha from Prakriti. So there's this sense that we are leaving the material world behind. And then we have, um, on the other side, and what I see you as representing is really what more I see coming from the Shaivite tantric tradition, which is... That matter is also divine that everything and that it's really not it's not that uh the material world is uh is something to be transcendent, but rather it's to be the our 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 lens through which we understand it is to shift and uh and it's really about our perspective on what the meaning is of the material world that's the problem it's our it's our illusions uh, as you say and and our ideas about it um exactly. So I wonder if you have anything else to say on that, and uh, and actually, uh, also that sort of connects to another question that I that I had, um, where you were talking about my, our our culture being very. Uh, this is actually from Eastern Body, Western Mind. You talk about our our obsession with mind over matter, and 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 maybe you could segue this discussion of of matter not being the problem into a discussion of 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 how that mind over matter. Uh, get away from matter. Matter is the problem. Idea has damaged our relationship to our bodies.
1: Mm, Yeah, yeah. Well, let's look historically at where that came from, because I think when we study spiritual traditions, we have to understand them in the context of the historical period in which they arose. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was a time when humans really only live close to the earth and everything was about farming and their animals and their children and, you know, the mundane aspects of life. And, um, you know, when that dominated consciousness, there needed to be someone to open up another pole and say, wait a minute, there's more to it than this, Mm -hmm. you know? And that is, you know, the spiritual, what we call the spiritual perspective and the axial age and all the great, you know, religions. Um, And, you know, all you have to do is see Wall Street and say, you know, hey, there's a spiritual perspective that's not really, you know, being engaged in here. So um, in that context, that was that was a big thing. Mm -hmm. And so what tends to happen in evolution is when we discover something new, we make the old thing bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, you know, even. In medicine, I was reading something on the history of medicine. When they discovered the microscope and they discovered germs, all of a sudden, that was the cause of all illness. And all the other healing techniques that had been used up until then were seen as outdated and they were discarded Mm -hmm. in favor of drugs and pharmaceuticals, which could kill germs. Well, we know not all illness is caused by germs. You know, there's energetic imbalances and all kinds of things, but we lost a lot of those healing traditions. So there's a tendency to denigrate um, what has been before just because we've discovered something new. And that Mm -hmm. happened um, big time with the, you know, takeover of the goddess traditions and, and the feminine, which was the earth and birth and the body in favor of this other pole. I think that humans needed to find this other pole, the transcendent. It's an incredibly important place to go. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it does have incredibly important spiritual fruits and insights to bear and lifts us out of our immersion in, in a kind of illusion. But the mistake we made is that we denigrated it all. And in that, we have created what I call three major first chakra collective crises a economic crisis, an environmental crisis, and a healthcare crisis. And so, in denigrating our bodies, we say everything is mental health. You see people that live that philosophy. All I have to do is go to a hotel and get in an elevator with them, and I say, "Well, this is what it looks like when you don't do yoga, mm-hmm. <laughs> or you don't pay attention to what you eat, or you know, you don't have a spiritual practice that in- includes the body." And, you know, I'm sitting as the same age of these people in the elevator is a world, world of difference between us. Um, saying that the earth isn't important. We've denigrated the earth. You know, if you go to India, there is garbage all over the streets, everywhere. Yeah. And yeah. they don't seem to think that that has any bearing on their spiritual connection. Mm-hmm. Um, because they've denigrated the earth and they have extreme poverty there. Yeah, and um, you know, extreme suffering in the lower chakras, mm-hmm. and so there's a hazard to that,
0: for sure. Huh, that's so interesting. So then, you know, this this is a good um, moment to maybe discuss something. Actually, you know what? Before we do that, I wanted to ask you what you how you would respond because, and this is maybe taking us back a little bit, but um, you know, often you hear people say, well, you know, especially since our culture is very attracted to or we think everything that is real has to be physical or, it, you know, has to be physically present. And uh, so the argument from the physicalist camp that the chakras, because they aren't physical entities, are therefore not real. How do you respond to someone who maybe has that concern about the physical location literally of the chakras?
1: Yeah. Well, I just say that they have they're not physically real. But they have physical uh, experiences. And I'll just say, did you ever get butterflies in your stomach? Did you ever get a frog in your throat? Did you ever feel your heart beating rapidly? Did you ever have an orgasm? You know, I mean, anybody's had any of those experiences and they're quite universal. They have felt the activity of the chakra. And somebody might say, oh, well, that's just you know, my throat doing its thing. It's not a chakra. And so that's fine. I will say that, you know, you could talk about someone having power issues or sexuality issues or emotional issues or communication issues. You don't even have to use the word chakra and people can relate to that.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: You know, you can say my issue, my power issues are bumping up against your power issues. And that, that says a lot.
0: Yeah. I think uh, one, uh, one, a useful kind of analogy or metaphor that i that i that i found helpful for this conversation is you know the subway map of new york city where i live is not at all a- a completely analogous to the ge- the actual geography of, of the city. I mean, it's completely, yeah. you know, it's a different map, and it's not trying to be accurate um, geographically. It's serving a different purpose. It's like you said before, it's a map for, for people to get from point A to point B. You know, if people want to get to a certain road, they're going to have to follow a very different map. So, you know, in this sense, it's The the chakras are a map. They're not actually trying to map themselves onto, you know, the, uh, of course, there is a physical correspondence in the same way that there is with the subway map, but it's not, it's not a, a, you know, it's not a a one to one, you know, analogy.
1: That's a beautiful analogy. I might borrow that. <laughs>
0: yeah, take it. <laughs> yeah. So the next thing I wanted to discuss uh, is is body armor. So you, you know, a lot of what you talk about in the in in your books is the is how the condition of the chakras manifests through a particular body armor. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what is body armoring and then what is the relationship between body armor and the chakras.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, the body is a great big tube. That's putting it very simply. But, you know, uh, it's a tube for energy. And the core of that is what we would call the sushumna or the pranic tube. And then it has all these channels. And so when we say, you know, we do a meditation, we say, okay, everybody, let's close our eyes and go inside. Well, where do we go? We go to what we experience as the very inside of us, where there's a life force. We talk about the divine within. You know, that inside is intrinsically me. You have an inside that's you. And then there's the outside. And so the body, the physical body, mediates between the inside and the outside. And in this way, the chakras are portals between the inner world and the outer world. Hmm. And so not only are they centers spinning at the core, but they are gateways that allow energy in and out or don't, as the case may be. Mm -hmm. So if you grew up in an environment that was very toxic and let's say people were yelling all the time, you might have wanted to shut down the receiving of life force through your throat chakra because you didn't want to hear that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And you would create armor there. Or maybe when you were crying or you were you know, a kid having a temper tantrum or something, you were told, that's not okay. Button it up. And then you have to keep the inside energy from coming out. So to mediate between the inside, to keep outside energy from coming in or inside energy from coming out, we create blocks in the chakras, depending Mm -hmm. on what level it is. If you think it's not safe to love and you can't bring your loving self out because you think it's too risky with a partner then you're going to close down your heart chakra and it's going to become armored if you think it's not safe to be as big as you are energetically you're going to shut down your third chakra and if you think you know your sexuality is wrong or bad you're going to shut down you know the second chakra or if you're afraid of sexuality from outside you're going to try to keep that away from you so you could take the meaning of each chakra and say, how does a person armor? And as we went through the, the schema of the chakras, I mentioned that each one has a developmental stage of childhood. So if we are wounded in any of these developmental stages, we create a typical kind of body armor that goes with the task we were trying to develop at that stage. Mm-hmm. So if we're wounded in the beginning of the third chakra stage, we might never develop our power and we become what's called the endurer character structure that just becomes a victim and endures and its other name is the masochist. You know, we just kind of take it and we hunker down. Um, But if you get wounded in the later stage of the third chakra, you might be very angry and manipulative. You know, if we get wounded in our second chakra, that may um, armor, the movement of our hips and pelvis. Um, we may have problems in our reproductive organs, you know, it it can show up internal organs. It can show up in muscular armoring. It can show up in behavior.
0: Mm -hmm. So, so, so someone's psychological development in, uh, in a certain sense can be read in the body is kind of what, what body armoring seems to be implying that, that you can see perhaps at least a certain kind of deficiency or, or, um, a developmental, um, truth that took place with regards to the chakras in someone's physical body. Yes. So could you maybe, you know, you do such a wonderful job at sharing case studies, um, in your books. I'm wondering if you would maybe share one or two case studies that kind of illustrate this.
1: Well, I can just, you know, share some practices or things that I do even in my workshops. You oh, know? yeah, that'd be great. Working with the first chakra deficiency, which is someone that is pulled out of their body. They never became fully embodied and connected with their body. Somebody that lives in their head mm. often makes a very, very skinny body. Like mm. they're trying to have the minimum amount of physical substance. Yeah. Uh, we call a schizoid character structure. And um that's a first chakra wound a first chakra deficiency so what i do with a person like that is a very simple exercise um a little easier to see than describe in an audio but i have them stand and then i'll say wherever i touch on your body i want you to ground yourself take breath and push back against my touch so i'll mm-hmm. touch their upper arm and have them push from the inside out because there's an invisible force constricting them into yeah. the core. And by ha- it being that force and having them push back against it, you can see it visibly right in front of the whole group. This person expands, they come down into their body, they get softer, they get, and some people have said, Oh my God, I'm here for the first time in my life, really wow. here. Yeah. You know, I can also have them push down into their legs, like, you know, put my hands on their feet and have them push against my resistance. And that starts to ground them. I, I pulled somebody out of a psychotic uh, break just by having her push into her legs one time. And all of a wow. sudden she sat yeah. up and said, oh, my God, where have I been? Amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. So that's working with the armor that comes from saying, I don't want to be here. It's not safe. Yeah. Um other kinds of body armor can be too much weight and that can be an indulgence of the second chakra. It can be a protection of the first chakra saying, I don't feel safe unless there's a a lot of layers around me. Um, It can be the endurer character structure that just thickens in order to minimize the, the, um, in order to minimize the impact of what's outside by making a thicker wall, they kind of numb out And for that kind of person, the weight is all, um, you know, it's stored energy that Mm -hmm. is not released. You know, the body is a storage battery for prana or charge. And so I get the person to activate that charge through different exercises. It might be a yoga posture. It might be a bioenergetic exercise. It might be having them push into my hands and make noise it might be having them, you know, thrash a pillow with a baseball bat. Uh there's different things I do to get somebody's energy moving. Mm-hmm. And when it gets moving, that can start to dissolve what is stored in the body armor.
0: Mm. Well, that's great. Thank you for sharing those. Um so I have a I have quite a, kind of a question that maybe you're not going to like, it's sort of like a very, it's a massively generalized question and maybe it even can't be answered, but I'm kind of curious if you could describe the archetypal character armor of Western culture, uh, Uh what would it look like?
1: Well, what segment of Western culture? I think that we get all different kinds. Um, I would say sort of the model that, It was typically American. Like if I go travel in Europe and I look at the American tourists, (laughs) um, there's a lot of armoring around the third and fourth chakra. They're pulled out of their lower two chakras Mm -hmm. and they aren't in their upper two chakras. Mm -hmm. And so they expand around the middle (laughs) and they're, you know, I call the lower two chakras, the very personal chakras, your body, your sexuality. That's pretty personal stuff. Yeah, for sure. Then chakras three, four, and five, you know, we have interactions with a lot of people. That's interpersonal. Mm -hmm. And then chakras six and seven are transpersonal. Mm -hmm. So I would say if there was to be a generalization, then that's people living in their interpersonal chakras and not in touch with their personal, not in touch with their body, not in touch with their true sexuality, and not in touch either with the transpersonal, the transcendent, the spiritual, what we call the spiritual, um, not maybe even interested in that. And that that's sort of the typical American armoring. But then if you go to academia, you see the schizoid character structure with a lot of people in their heads. Yeah. You know, mm. If you go into politics and entertainment, you find a lot of people in you know the pathology would be called the psychopathic character structure but it's also we call it the challenger defender um they are gravitating toward power and they're really strong in their power chakras and may even be connected spiritually some way but they um tend to dominate things that's another whole um Realm, And then there's all the workers who are kind of in the endurer character structure. They go to work every day and they just put up with it and they live lives that are kind of deadening, you know, Mm. and their life force is deadened as they just sort of endure whatever lot life has given them without really awakening their power to change it.
0: Mm. Wow. So for somebody who is maybe interested in learning more about um, character armor uh, I know I know that obviously your books are a great resource. Is there, is there any, are there any other texts that you would suggest?
1: Yeah. Um, I talk about the character structures in Eastern Body, Western Mind, but one of my colleagues has written a book recently, and we have talked about these patterns of body armor together for years, um, called The Five Personality Patterns. It's by Stephen Kessler, K-E-S-S-L-E-R. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really excellent. I highly endorse that book. Um, We also have on Sacred Centers an online course called Who Do You Think You Are, which is about the five different character structures and the patterns of armoring that Stephen did. And um, that's another way to learn more. And I'm also writing a book on it right now. I'm writing a book on charge, which is my word for the life force, and how we bind it into armor and the different patterns of binding. But that's just in it's early beginnings right now.
0: Wow. Do you know? Do you have any idea when that might be uh, No. No?
1: I don't have a publisher yet. I okay. haven't signed a contract on it yet. So it's a
0: ways off. Okay. It's a ways off. A couple years anyway. All right. Well, we'll look forward to it for sure. Uh, so this has been so enlightening and wonderful, and thank you so much for sharing your time. I just have, a, I, I guess, a few more questions, um, which are ones that I, I ask most of the people that I interview, and, and one, you've spoken a little bit about your future writing projects, so you the one on charge. Is there any other projects you have going on that you want to share coming up?
1: Well, I teach workshops around the world, and I teach workshops on these various topics, um from yoga to working with character armor, bioenergetics to manifestation, a workshop called Creating on Purpose. But one thing that um I would just highlight a little bit that is lesser known in my work, um, and that's expressed in the book The Global Heart Awakens, is the chakras are a map for our global transformation. Mm. And we all need, we all know, anyone who's awake anyway, yeah, <laughs> somewhat yeah. awake, that this world needs to radically transform if we're going to make it into the future. Mm-hmm. You know, our environmental crises, climate change, economic disparities, I mean, I could go on and on. And that tra- that change is both personal and collective. Mm-hmm. And that the chakras are a map for that also. And on that map, it says that as I see it, and I put this all out in the book, that we're moving from an organizing principle based on the third chakra that we've been in since the dawn of civilization, cities 5,000 years ago, to moving to the next level, which is a heart chakra organized society. And I call it moving from the love of power to the power of love. Mm. And as we move from an ego-based, me, me, mine, mine, I get to dominate and just take whatever I want from wherever it exists, and I don't care about anybody else. From that kind of mindset, from you know, moving from a chain of command to a web of connection, from an ego system to an ecosystem, um, you know, there's a lot of shifts that we are all experiencing, and it really is happening in the world. Even technology is helping us connect with each other socially in a way that was never before possible. Mm-hmm. And connect with people on the other side of the world because we see pictures of refugees, you know, washing up on shore in the islands of Greece, you know. Um, In the past, that would never have been known, or it would have taken months or years to get around the world. Mm -hmm. So we have this um, huge shift in the organizing principle for society. And so we know that these various things need to change. But as long as we're organized from the top-down hierarchy, we're still in the old system. Yeah, And we're growing up from you know, being children with a parental authority to being adults that know how to relate to each other and co-create. Mm-hmm. And that's happening in everything from Airbnb and, and what's the driving thing um, <laughs> that's replacing taxis. Uh, uh, Uber. Or Uber, you know. I mean, things that people are doing themselves without a central network. This is happening all over. Yeah. But we're also having to wake up in consciousness to this heart realm, which is connecting the upper chakras to the lower and reuniting that, reuniting the principles of masculine and feminine in our value systems. Yeah. You know, it's not about men and women; it's our value systems. Mm.
0: This is so interesting. I'm really glad that you brought up this the topic of, you know, global change because actually this is bringing up a question I want to ask now which is about essentially this kind of new kind of progressivism that I think you're advocating which is very different from the kind of progressivism that when I first personally and I and I see this a lot around me for people that are very fired up politically that typically associate themselves with the left there's a there's a profound Anger, but seems to me to be a a, a hyper intellectualized and and disembodied um, modality of the criticism. I, I, at least when I was. Um, when I was much younger before when I first started it was the bush years when I first started getting political and and i I realized you know at some point that the the anger that I had although it was obviously legitimate to some degree was also rooted in a lot of work that I needed to do personally and and it, it seems to me that there's a lot of people that that are blaming the social uh, mm-hmm. without ever putting the lens on the personal or seeing that you know personal path through this kind of um, uh, developmental evolution as being crucial to this project rather than kind of you know placing the blame on you know institutional mechanisms or or governments uh, or things like this so i'm wondering if you could maybe remark on what how what you're advocating as as this sort of attitude towards change is maybe different from from what we see often, um, from the left, which seems to be, uh, kind of, a uh, an attitude towards it, which is, which lacks an investigation into the personal, the spiritual.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think that we have to understand things in their evolutionary context and we can get mad at, you know, we can get mad at our parents, for example, for being a certain way. But then if we understand their life and what they grew up with and what the forces were acting on them, We understand that they were a a creature of their times, Mm -hmm. you know, and it becomes less personal that way. The personal and the political are completely connected. Um, Our personal experience, we live in this political realm, like it or not, you know, whether Mm -hmm. we agree with the, you know, philosophies that are running our culture or not, we live in it. (laughs) Um, But I think in the rallying against it, we're still in the old paradigm, the us and them paradigm. And if we understand that this was a product of the times and that we're evolving to a new level, it becomes more important to create the new paradigm than to rally against the old. Yeah. And an analogy I use in the Global Heart book is that when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, You know, the chrysalis forms around it, curtailing its freedoms. It turns upside down where all the values turn on its head. And um, the caterpillar body starts to dissolve and imaginal cells are created. Mm -hmm. And the imaginal cells are so different, the caterpillar body initially attacks them. The immune system attacks them. But they appear in such greater numbers, they overwhelm the caterpillar's ability to you know attack them and it then becomes a nutritious soup to for the emerging butterfly so this says you know that the imaginal cells don't attack the caterpillar (laughs) they just create something new and as they create something new um it attracts other pieces and a case in point would be the whole yoga movement you know having been in it for 40 years when you know it was first in people's living rooms on towels, you couldn't even buy a mat um, to where it is today. How does that happen? Somebody meets somebody at a party that they haven't seen in five years and they go, "Wow, you look great. What have you been doing? Oh, I've been doing yoga. Oh really, tell me more. Where do you practice? I want to look like that."
0: Mm.
1: You know And that may not be the right reason to come into yoga, but it's a kind of I want what she's having. Yeah, you yeah. know uh, when we create something new that's better, We naturally gravitate toward it, and the old starts to fall away. Mm. When we fight against the old, we have a strange way of strengthening it.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's so. I love that that image, that metaphor of the. uh, Well, it's not a metaphor; it's a real thing. The imaginal cells. I think that. I think it's such a beautiful it could be a beautiful metaphor for a book about this kind of exact thing that you're talking about. I think that's, I've never heard of the imaginal cells before. That's so cool.
1: That's what biologists actually call them because they're so different. And, you know, you can see that the people that go to yoga conferences, they're wanting to be with other imaginal cells and people go to, you know, alternative healing conferences, they're wanting to be with other imaginal cells. So at a certain point, these imaginal cells start to clump together because they like to be together. Mm -hmm. And that's where a new organization starts to take place, a new organizing principle.
0: Wow. That's excellent. So where can people find more about you, Anadea? Uh, What are the websites where people can find your courses, your books, and and sort of the goings-on, your next workshops?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, My main Clearinghouse website is sacredcenters.com, and that's centers, plural, the sacred centers of the chakras. And that has pretty much all my information on it. I do have a couple other websites, one for the Creating on Purpose, which is creatingonpurpose.net, and one for uh, the Global Heart, uh, which is globalheartawakens.com. And, of course, I'm active on Facebook with several pages, a page for my chakra yoga, for chakra therapy, under my name, lots of different places on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, all that stuff.
0: Okay, great. great.
1: And then um, lastly, so
0: one of the uh, offerings that we uh, have at Five Tapas is what I call the Embodied Philosopher's Library, and it's essentially an annotated bibliography with all of the wisdom books that you know, I wish I had had when I first started looking for material on on yoga and yoga philosophy. And I'm wondering if, you know, obviously, besides your books, which I think are already on there, um, if you could share maybe a few books to be contributed to that resource that you think are that have been meaningful for you that you would want to share with the listeners?
1: On spiritual topics, on healing, on,
0: on anything yoga philosophy, yoga philosophy, chakras, on healing, really whatever kind of fits under that broader embodied philosophy uh, uh, umbrella.
1: hmm hmm Gosh, um, that's I'd have to think about that. It's kind of putting me on the spot. My mind is racing through thousands of books. Oh goodness! Uh, I like Peter Levine's work on trauma, which I think is important. He has a, a book in an unspoken voice. Or Waking the Tiger, those are good ones mm-hmm. um, Gosh, spiritual philosophy I love Iknath Eswaran's books mm-hmm. on, on He's got a great one on the Upanishads And, you know, there's, uh, you know, for a spiritual There's plenty of good yoga books out there uh, yeah. Gosh, I'd have to think, you know Those are just coming to mind off the top of my head oh, Well,
0: those are perfect, yeah, two is great We can put that in there Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Anadea. Um, uh, it's been such a wonderful conversation and really so many knowledge bombs in there that I think people are going <laughs> to really, <laughs> maybe bomb is the wrong word to use, but a lot of great wisdom to, to, to be used in, in people's practice. I'm wondering if there's any other kind of practices uh, that you might want to share, any last parting words that you want to share?
1: Well, sure. First of all, thank you, Jacob, for a really intelligent and articulate on your part, interview, which I always enjoy these when I've got somebody intelligent to talk to. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think my most basic practice that for shorthand I call the hookup is sending your roots down into the earth, lifting your crown up into the heavens, and finding the line of the central line through your core, the sushumna, the axis mundi, the core, whatever you want to call it, Uh, the capital letter I, that exists between them. And the more we start to access our core, the more we're accessing where the chakras all line up. And we are connecting to the earth, we're connecting to the heavens, we're bridging that polarity, and we become the rainbow bridge that connects heaven and earth. Mm. And the philosophies of the rainbow bridge say that as doomsday approaches, the rainbow bridge will break down and heaven and earth will no longer be connected. I think the chakra system is a way to avert doomsday by reconnecting heaven and earth into their original unity, which is the true meaning of yoga.
0: Wow. Thank you so much. That was such a beautiful uh, note to end on. Okay, great. Thank you, Anadea, um, uh, for joining us. And I hope to speak with you soon. Um, Have a wonderful rest of your day. Okay. And thank you so much.
1: Thank you. And thank you to the listeners for taking the time.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, and thank you for listening to that interview with Anadea Judith. If you're interested in learning more about Anadea, as she mentioned, her websites are sacredcenters.com, sacredcenters.com, which includes most of the information about her books and workshops and upcoming retreats and trainings. And she also mentioned a couple of websites, creatingonpurpose.net and globalheartawakens.com.